0: From Madison, Wisconsin in the United States of global hegemony, it's Didactic
1: Syncast, with your host Eric P. Y'all ready for this? So powerful. that not only pounds, but place to a few heart-stopping seconds of anxiety. Didactic Syncast, your overview of everything important on the planet Earth. I am Eric S. Piotrowski, a writer and educator in Wisconsin, USA. I am known as Duke Scath in the world of video games and Twitter, a.k.a. Scartol in the world of Wikipedia and Reddit. Today is, what, Monday, the 26th of December, 2016. Happy Boxing Day! On this show, I bring you a range of news stories, historical and literary perspectives, and my opinions on topics like current events, war, human rights, economics, education, hip-hop, music, and killer robots. So buckle up and let's get started. A little bit better than dope, bitch. A brand new kid to show
0: biz. With knowledge, I persevere. But if I now do me a favor, favor. favor. let me in an here. Then we can find a rhyme to fill in space and drop the bass with a tape.
1: So last time, of course, uh, was the interview with Soph, and I want to thank her again for coming on and um, being so awesome. And I want to apologize to her for interrupting her uh, frequently. I think the problem too was that the mic levels were different between me and her, and um, yeah, it, it wasn't the best recording I've ever done in terms of technical stuff. Um, and and because of that, I, I had felt like I kind of had to like, you know, use my volume to to make sure that she understood that I was trying to say something and. Whatever. Anyway, the point is, I think it was a great conversation and I really appreciate her coming on the show. I may have another really cool interview lined up. I'm still working out the details and trying to get that nailed down. I'll keep you posted, obviously. Um, yeah, Christmas was great. Um, I got the two things that I wanted most in the world. Time uh, to spend with my loved ones, especially the Duchess, and uh, chocolate I had a student give me a chocolate bar, and another student gave me a plastic candy cane filled with M&Ms, and then Chinny and Tara sent me this amazing box full of gifts, and among them was this awesome Skyrim shirt, which I am now wearing, and a big collection of Cadbury chocolates, including the Double Decker, which is the best chocolate bar that Cadbury, I mean, it's hard to say whether that's better than the Caramello Bar, because the Caramello Bar is magnificent, but the Double Decker is also really good. So thanks to them, they also sent stuff for the Duchess and for Tito, and uh, it was just a great, wonderful gift to get. Um, I I actually don't like getting presents for the holidays just because I have enough stuff in my life in general, but it's really nice to get something from people uh, overseas especially because, you know, I know it takes extra money and time to send that stuff out, but... Anyway, uh, yeah, so now I'm looking forward to a pretty relaxing week. We're gonna do the veteran gamers live show tomorrow, and I guess we do a live show every week now, but anyway, um, yeah, and I'm working on some poetry and stuff that I might be putting out a chat book or something. I'll keep you posted about that. Speaking of books, I want to thank everybody who's been so supportive with the Mind Wipe book about stress, anger, and ego. Um, there's a woman in Sun Prairie named Marta Hansen who's been hosting me as we do Circles of Mindfulness and her shop every week. So if you're in Sun Prairie or you're in Madison and you want to join us for a little bit of mindfulness once a week, it's Wednesday afternoons at 4 at the Piano Gal shop. Uh, stop on by and say hello and, and come do nothing with us. Um, as for, you know, I usually give take-action uh, updates, and uh, Soph actually linked me to a really good website called wallofus.org. It's wall of Us. Dot org and they're great because every week they issue four different actions that we can take in order to try to stop Trump's horrible agenda from taking place and yeah so go to that website and check it out and you can take action for instance this week they want people to contact Loretta Lynch the um, the uh, center of justice uh, person in charge of the uh, Justice Department under Obama and they said you know hey Loretta uh, Madam Lynch, uh, Secretary of... The, I don't know what her title is. I'm trying to remember. Attorney General. Duh. I'm so stupid. Anyway, uh, they want people to contact the Attorney General's office and say, Hey, uh, please investigate these Russian hacking allegations about what Trump knew, about what the Russians were doing. And there's talk that maybe Putin knew personally that uh, the hackers were involved in the U.S. election files and all sorts of other stuff. So anyway, uh, I would like an investigation for that. And if you would also like an investigation, then uh, go to wall of of wall-of-us.org and check it out. All right, so let's go ahead and talk about some current events. There's
0: no Have you heard of Eastermore.
1: Donald Trump continues to be our president-elect. Uh, the the Electoral College met recently, and although you know they had the capacity to say, look, this guy is dangerously unqualified to be president, they instead said, well, you know, most people kind of wanted him in the states where we live, so they voted the way that they always vote. And I think it's more evidence that the Electoral College shouldn't exist or certainly should change its way of functioning. So there's a petition online to not just – to change the Electoral College, but to get each state to change the way it relates to the Electoral College. I don't know the details, but um, I'm sure I could scramble them up if anyone's really interested. I can let you know about that. Um, Yeah. So, you know, I talked a lot about Trump last week or last time I did the show before I got to the SOF interview. And um, yeah, you know, he's been announcing his cabinet and it's totally messed up. If you don't know, he's been appointing the most you know, I mean, like Newt Gingrich and, you know, career politicians and career, you know, like hedge fund managers and the CEO of ExxonMobil is going to be our next secretary of state. All this stuff Trump said about when he was running for office, it was all, oh, you know, Washington is full of lobbyists and special interest people and, and I'm going to drain the swamp. And now he's doing the exact opposite. He's putting all the same crumb bums into positions of power. And, you know, his billionaire friends like Betsy DeVos is going to be the secretary of education. And she's been a champion of school choice, quote unquote, which has just been a nightmare for schools. And we'll get to that in the education segment of this show. Uh, so, you know, it's it there's no surprises going on here. I, I just wish that Trump supporters would recognize that. I hope they recognize and I, I you know, whatever. We'll see. But their, their 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 pain has been exploited, and it's continuing to be exploited. Whatever part of his voting block did so because of frustration at the system and economic desperation. All of that frustration and 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 situa- economic depravity—not depravity, but you know deprivation—it's it's all being exploited by Trump. And I hope that people who did support Trump start to realize just how much they've been taken advantage of and bamboozled and hoodwinked. In the name of uh, change, because I don't—nothing's really going to change except for the worse. So I can't really keep up with all the Trump stuff going on. I don't really add to my show notes every time Trump does something stupid or there's some horrible decision that comes down the pike. But uh, here's some of it. So uh, Rex Tillerson is, uh, like I said, he's going—he was the—he's the CEO of ExxonMobil, and he's going to be the next Secretary of State under President Trump. And there was a really interesting article, where is this from, New York Times, Uh, the headline was, How Rex Tillerson Changed His Tune on Russia and Came to Court Its Rulers. And here's a little excerpt of that article. As a member of the U.S.-Russia Business Council and Chief Executive of ExxonMobil, Rex W. Tillerson frequently voiced doubts about Russia's investment climate, saying as late as 2008 that Russia, quote, must improve the functioning of its judicial system and its judiciary. There is no respect for the rule of law in Russia today, end quote. This past February, however, Mr. Tillerson, president-elect Donald J. Trump's choice to be the next Secretary of State, was sounding a very different theme, telling students at the University of Texas that he has, quote, a very close relationship with President Vladimir V. Putin of Russia. In the intervening years, oil industry experts and other analysts say, as Mr. Putin consolidated his control over Russia's oligarchs, Mr. Tillerson underwent a profound change of outlook. He came to realize that the key to success in Russia, a country deeply important to Exxon's future, lay in establishing personal relationships with Mr. Putin and his friend and confidant Igor Seshin, the powerful head of Rosneft, the state oil company. And as Mr. Tillerson and other oil executives pivoted from the private sector to the state oil company, the criticism that they had directed toward the Kremlin dried up. The payoff for Exxon was immense. A $500 billion joint venture in 2011 to drill for oil on the Arctic Shelf and the Black Sea and another huge deal to develop shale oil deposits in Siberia. Those projects were shelved in 2014 after the West imposed sanctions on Russia for Mr. Putin's actions in Crimea and Ukraine. End of quote from the article. So, you know, this guy was talking about, oh, human rights, the rule of law in Russia. And then as soon as it becomes clear that they can make some money by working with Putin, suddenly all that talk about human rights goes away. And this is something we see over and over in the world. People talk a lot about the importance of human rights when it benefits their bottom line as a business or their ideology in the world of politics. As soon as it doesn't affect those things or as soon as it doesn't benefit them to, you know, as soon as they stand to gain from ignoring human rights abuses or, you know, lack of rule of law, lack of fair elections, whatever it is, suddenly uh, they don't talk about it anymore. So that's very disappointing to see. Uh, And, of course, you know, Putin's been, we saw the two members of the, punk rock group Pussy Riot speak in Madison recently, and they had a lot of really important things to say about how artists and journalists have been treated in in Russia. Uh, You know, you you step out of line, you get hammered down, right? The nail that sticks out gets hammered down, and that's what happens in Russia, and that's probably what's going to happen in the United States under Trump. And it's really frustrating and disappointing that people don't realize how much of a threat to democracy itself that is. Because people are all about like, well, you know, look, the outcome of the election is the only thing that determines whether democracy is living or not. But it's not. There's so many other parts of democracy that people tend to ignore. So anyway, um, speaking of horrible Realpolitik practitioners, uh, Politico had an article called, uh, the headline was, Kissinger, a longtime Putin confidant, sidles up to Trump. Uh, As Donald Trump signals that he wants a more cooperative relationship with Moscow, the 93-year-old Kissinger is positioning himself as a potential intermediary, meeting with the president-elect in private, and flattering him in public. Like Trump, Kissinger also has cast doubt on intelligence agencies' conclusions that Russia sought to sway the election in Trump's favor, telling a recent interviewer, They were hacking, but the use they allegedly made of this hacking eludes me. And if you ever hear Henry Kissinger talk, he has a very particular accent. He talks like this. Uh, Later in the article... Kissinger and Trump have chatted on multiple occasions, including during at least one face-to-face meeting since the November 8th election. And Kissinger, just to the surprise of many in the broader foreign policy establishment, has spoken admiringly, albeit carefully, about the Trump phenomenon. Even after Trump spoke directly with the president of Taiwan, a move that angered Beijing and went against the one-China policy that Kissinger negotiated in the 1970s, the former Secretary of State expressed confidence Trump would uphold U.S. diplomatic Traditions with the Chinese, so okay. First of all, if if you don't know, Henry Kissinger was at the meeting where President uh, Ford gave the green light for Indonesia to invade East Timor, so he's got a long history. Not to mention his many horrible entanglements with the U.S. bombing of Cambodia and the Vietnam War. Um, Christopher Hitchens wrote a book, which they made into a documentary film called *The Trials of Henry Kissinger*, and uh, it's it's full of information about why Henry Kissinger is a scumbag of the highest degree. And a war criminal, and I mean every other bad name you could possibly want to call him. So, but he's also, you know, the the traditional world of foreign relations looks at him as a genius because you know he understands how things work, and oh, he, you know, he he can master realpolitik, and he's a Machiavellian schemer. He drafted the Paris Peace Accords all that stuff. I don't care. You know what I mean? It's like if somebody stabs a bunch of kids and then like, but you know, he made his business work great. Like what about all the kids stabbing? Like, wow, you know, his business is really, it made a lot of profits. So Uh, I believe kids stabbing is bad. Stabbing kids is wrong. There's your title for uh, the show today. Yeah. So Kissinger sucks. Um, and he's hanging out with Trump now. Yay, it's two great tastes that go great together. It's like a Reese's peanut butter cup, but instead of uh, chocolate and peanut butter, you've got feces and hamster vomit. Is it hamster feces? No, it's not. Uh, Trump private security forces, quote, playing with fire. And again, this comes from Politico.com. I don't, I'm don't. i not a huge political fan. I just happen to have a few articles from them this week. I don't know why. Uh, President-elect Donald Trump has continued employing a private security and intelligence team at his victory rallies. Victory rallies. First of all, the fact that Trump is hosting victory rallies. What is that? I can't stop thinking about Nuremberg rallies. Like, it's just a, a matter of whipping people into a frenzy in various parts of the country. And then, you know, they become deputized as like, well... You know, and, and look, I'm not playing around. This isn't anything new that I'm talking about. The Southern Poverty Law Center has a report called 10 Days After, uh, which is all about all the hate crimes. They recorded like 850 hate crimes in the 10 days after the election. And a lot of them were people saying, yeah, our President Trump says we can kill you faggots. And I'm quoting from the report there. Some guy was pulled out of his car in Florida and beaten to a pulp. And the guy was like, Trump said we can kill you faggots now. So you know this is a worrying trend and the only thing trump's ever done about it was in 60 minutes he's like i'll look right in the camera and say knock it off and that's it um so it's it's really sick and pathetic so these victory rallies it's so disturbing he's going around being like yeah we won eh! Uh, And he is expected to keep at least some members of the team after he becomes president, according to people familiar with the plans. The arrangement represents a major break from tradition. All modern presidents and presidents-elect have entrusted their personal security entirely to the Secret Service and their event security mostly to local law enforcement, according to presidential security experts and Secret Service sources. Security officials warn that employing private security personnel heightens risks for the president-elect and his team as well as for protesters, dozens of whom have alleged racial profiling, undue force, or aggression at the hands of Trump's security, with at least 10 joining a trio of lawsuits now pending against Trump, his campaign, or its security. Quote, it's playing with fire, said Jonathan Wackrow, a former Secret Service agent who worked on President Barack Obama's protective detail during his 2012 re-election campaign. Having a private security team working events with Secret Service, quote, increases the service's liability, it creates greater confusion, and it creates greater risk, Wackrow said. So, you know, Donald Trump's doing a whole lot of stuff that's unconventional. Uh, he's also going to have an inauguration ball uh, that has no celebrities in it. Ted Nugent and Scott Baio look like the only celebrities who will even hang out with him, uh, which is amusing. And the Rockettes, if you haven't heard, a bunch of them are like, we don't want to dance for Donald Trump. That guy's a scumbag. He grabs women by the genitals. That's not an that's not audience I want to play for. But their union has said, if you don't play for Donald Trump, you're fired. So they're in this tough spot where it's like they have to choose. Are they going to play for this guy who's totally reprehensible or are they going to uh, get fired? And it's really messed up. And there's been a campaign to try to push and demand that they not have to perform for this reprehensible dude. But we'll see what happens. And special thanks to Diane for linking us. I mean, he was uh, Tonahasi Coates is a great writer for the Atlantic magazine, and he's been on, he was on the Daily Show recently talking about his most recent piece called "My President Was Black." And Diane read it before I did, and it's so good. And if you haven't read it, you really should, because it's sort of half love letter to Obama and half well, it's one third love letter to Obama, one third breakdown of why Obama was able to be successful in part because you know, he had this unwavering faith in the goodness of all Americans, which in many cases proved to be unfounded since most of America, you know, barely tolerated his existence, but then fought every piece of legislation he ever proposed. And in many cases, you know, a lot of America struck out with racist, you know, horribleness at every moment. And then one third of it is a sort of a a look at how Trump rode the anti-Obama wave into office so it's a really interesting breakdown of the social element and the racial element and the economic element and all sorts of other elements and it's got you know personal memoir elements and it's got you know exclusive interviews that ta Coates has done with Obama and it's just been a re- it's a really good piece you should read the whole thing uh here's one paragraph that's very very important so he's talking about the post-Trump election analysis and how, you know, oh, everyone talks about the economic factors, which are important, right? But but there's something that gets left out. People usually want to talk about the Trump victory as one of two things. It's either, well, these people in the Rust Belt are hurting economically and Trump was the only one speaking to their pain, uh, or everybody who voted for Trump was a bigot and a racist and a sexist and a xenophobe and they hate Muslims and they're just the scum of the earth. And town Hotzko says, "Let's look at it. let's look at both of those pieces because they're both important, right?" Uh, so here's the from the article. It was said that the Americans who'd supported Trump were victims of liberal condescension. The word racist would be dismissed as a profane slur upon the common man, as opposed to an accurate description of actual men. "Quote: We simply don't know yet how much racism or misogyny motivated Trump voters." David Brooks would write in the New York Times, "If you were stuck in a jobless town, watching your friends OD on opiates." Scrambling every month to pay the electric bill, and then along came a guy who seemed able to fix your problems and hear your voice, maybe you would stomach some ugliness too. End quote. This strikes me as perfectly logical. Indeed, it could apply just as well to Louis, Far- Louis Farrakhan's appeal to the black, poor, and working class. But, whereas the followers of an Islamophobic white nationalist enjoy the sympathy must always greet the salt of the earth, the followers of an anti-Semitic black nationalist... Endure the scorn that must ever greet the children of the enslaved. So, like I said, it's a really good article. You should really read the whole thing, and uh, I will definitely link to it in the show notes. Moving on now, uh, the Israeli settlements. Oh my goodness, there was this big deal that happened at the UN. So every time the UN makes a um, a resolution to condemn something that Israel is doing, the United States usually vetoes it. And so the Security Council can't really get much done on Israel because the U.S. blocks action on Israel, the same way we blocked action uh, when Indonesia invaded East Timor. The, the thing is that occasionally stuff gets through because the U.S. doesn't block, doesn't use its veto power. There are five permanent members of the Security Council, and then there's like a number of rotating temporary members and often so for instance in Syria Russia has been blocking UN action to stop the Syrian civil war for five years because Russia really likes Bashar al-Assad and so they've been blocking all the action at the UN. Um, So the U.S. usually does that when it comes to Israel but very recently this past week the Obama administration refused to veto a uh, resolution condemning the settlements that Israel has been building in the occupied territories, which, as the Palestinian Authority points out, they are illegal under the Geneva Conventions. Article 4 talks about uh, the responsibilities of occupying powers. And one of them is they cannot move people into that area and they cannot force people to move out of that area. And so the settlements are a flagrant violation of that. Anyway, the point is that it passed because the U.S. abstained. It didn't veto. And now Israel is talking about, well, maybe we shouldn't be part of the U.N. anymore. Now, keep in mind, the U.N. created the state of Israel. I had a student in Florida when I taught eighth grade. And he was—he had been to the Palestinian refugee camps. He was like hardcore PLO. Not even PLO. I mean, whatever. He didn't affiliate with one particular group. But he was all about like nobody understands what's really going on in Palestine, and he hated, you know, he, he didn't, I don't know that he really hated Jews, but he certainly hated the state of Israel. And so one time when the journal topic was, you know, what's your you know, perfect world look like, he said it was a world without the UN, because he thought of the UN as being this instrument of Zionist displacement and, and suffering for Palestinian people. And I couldn't argue with that, because I have never been to the Palestinian refugee camps, and, and I don't really know the details of it. But I know that looking at the world from my point of view, the UN has done some really important things, not the least of which includes East Timor. So... You know, whatever. The point is, Netanyahu, the prime minister of Israel, has said here, there's the article, Israel Settlements, Netanyahu Orders UN Ties Review. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has said Israel will reassess its ties with the United Nations. The move comes after the Security Council adopted a resolution demanding an end to Israeli settlement building on occupied land. The resolution was passed after the U.S. refused to veto it, breaking with long-standing American practice. Actually, not totally. We'll get to that in a second. Washington has traditionally sheltered Israel from condemnatory resolutions. So it's just so sad because, you know, anytime the U.N. says something that Israel doesn't like, they're just like, if I can't cheat, I'm going to take my ball and go home. And it's pathetic. Everybody should be able to, you know, look, one set of, hu- of standards for international law and human rights for everybody, okay? You don't get to pick and choose. And if you do something wrong, you should be willing to accept the judgment of the international community that you've done something wrong and stop doing that thing wrong. <laughs> But The Intercept, which is a really good news source, I mean, it's a very good news source. Some of their stuff feels like it's a little over the top. But anyway, uh, The Intercept called Obama's abstention toothless, their headline was, Obama allows toothless U.N. resolution against Israeli settlements to pass. And they point out that, you know, there's no mechanism for enforcing the end of the settlements, which, okay, fair enough. I don't know that the U.N. ever really does that. It's usually up to the member states to try to propose some sort of enforcement mechanism. But maybe that'll come later. We'll, we'll have to see exactly what effect this has on the settlements, which my guess is going to be not a whole lot, because the U.S. isn't going to demand that Israel change, really. We, all we did was sit this one out, So anyway, here's what the Intercept points out. This was the only Security Council resolution calling on Israel to respect international law that Obama ever refused to veto. Under George W. Bush, six similar resolutions were allowed through. Under H.W. Bush, nine resolutions critical of Israel were allowed through. At the same time, Obama awarded Israel with its largest military aid package ever, signing a Memorandum of Understanding in September that would give it $38 billion over 10 years. So, that's some good, good news from around the world. Uh, Back here at home, I have some news left over from before the election, when everything became about Trump and his craziness. Uh, Most of you have probably heard about this news, but it bears repeating anyway. Uh, Three charged in Kansas plot to bomb homes and worship center for Somalis. Uh, So for the sake of the article later, um, Donald Trump calls his plan to block Muslims from entering the U.S. extreme vetting, and he supports intense surveillance of all mosques in the U.S., and given this new development, maybe we should kick all the white men out of our country because, you know, if we got terrorists that are white guys, ooh, you know, Christians, we shouldn't allow any Christians into the country. We should have uh, INS and CIA and FBI agents uh, spying on every church in the country, I think. Federal investigators said they stopped a domestic terrorism plot by a militia group that planned to detonate bombs at a Garden City apartment complex where a number of Somalis live. Three southwest Kansas men were arrested and charged in federal court with domestic terrorism, acting U.S. attorney Tom Bial said in a news conference in downtown Wichita. The three are suspected of conspiring to set off a bomb where about 120 people, including many Muslim immigrants from Somalia, live and worship, Bial said. An apartment at the complex also serves as a mosque, officials said. The men were arrested in a town called Liberal, Kansas. How's that for irony? Ha! It's a hoot! Uh, The men are members of a small militia group that call themselves the Crusaders, Bial said. The bombing was scheduled for November 9th so as to not affect the general election. Isn't that interesting? In an emailed statement after the plot's announcement, the Council on American Islamic Relations called on state and federal law enforcement agencies to step up protection for mosques. The group is the nation's largest Muslim civil rights and advocacy organization. Quote, given this alleged plan to attack a Kansas mosque, the two other hate incidents reported today against Islamic institutions in Michigan and New Jersey, and the overall spike in anti-mosque incidents nationwide, state and federal authorities should offer stepped-up protection to local communities, Nihad Awad, executive director of the Council on American-Islamic Relations, said in a statement. And speaking of white terrorists, uh, Bundy Brothers acquitted in takeover of Oregon Wildlife Refuge, uh, This was when the bunch of guys took over the ranger station. I mean, this is federal property. This is public, you know, land. And they took it over with guns. They had weapons. There was a Wild West quality to the episode, with armed men in cowboy hats taking on federal agents in a tussle over public lands and putting out a call for aid only to see their insurrection fizzle. In a month-long trial here, the defendants never denied that they had occupied and held the Malheur. National Wildlife Refuge Headquarters for nearly six weeks, demanding that the federal government surrender the 188,000-acre property to local control. But their lawyers argue that the prosecutors did not prove that the group had engaged in an illegal conspiracy that kept federal workers, employees of the Fish and Wildlife Service, and the Bureau of Land Management from doing their jobs. And, and, you know, look, I, I don't know the details of the case. I don't know the specifics about how that law ought to be enforced. But I do know that you know, these white guys with guns tried, they took over a federal building for six weeks and they got no jail time whatsoever. And meanwhile, every week we see some unarmed black man on the highway get shot to death because cops are convinced that he was about to hurt someone. So there's clearly a racial element here. It's called gaslighting. They make you think you're crazy if you see racism. W. Kamal Bell had a great bit on one of his comedy albums about how You know, you you eat pizza every day and and you love pizza. You know pizza very well. And then you go to someone and you say, I had pizza for lunch today. And that person says, are you sure it was pizza? How do you know it was pizza? Maybe it was something that looked like pizza. It's called gaslighting. It's a a real thing. Uh, speaking of discrimination, uh, a doctor accuses a flight attendant, this is from ABC News, uh, of blatant discrimination during an emergency. Social media users have started the hashtags, we do exist, and what doctors look like to support Dr. Tamika Cross, a black doctor from Houston, who has accused Delta Airlines of discrimination. In a Facebook post that has garnered over 110,000 reactions and more than 40,000 shares in the past week, Cross wrote that a Delta Airlines flight attendant snubbed her and made condescending remarks when she volunteered to help a passenger having a medical emergency when cross raised her hand in response to a call for a physician on board cross said that the flight attendant allegedly told her oh no sweetie put your hand down we're looking for actual physicians or nurses or some type of medical personnel we don't have time to talk to you cross claimed that when she tried to explain that she was indeed a physician the attendant quote bombarded her with questions including what type of doctor are you where do you work why were you in detroit The flight attendant eventually accepted the help of another seasoned white male who approached and said he was a physician as well, Cross said. And again, look, I mean, yes, it's possible that it wasn't about race, but it's also possible and even probable that it was about race. So you can't prove it at a time like that. And that's one of the reasons why white supremacy and race discrimination can continue to exist is because... We can't prove that they are the, you know, these days you can't see who's in cahoots because now the KKK is wearing three-piece suits. Attitudes haven't shifted that much, but everybody's convinced that we all live in this enlightened age where nobody could possibly have a shred of racism in them. So then how do you always explain the constant killing of unarmed black men by white police officers? And how do you explain the fact that this woman was given the third degree in a way that a white man never would have gotten if it was like, hey, we need a doctor, right? They try to make us think we're crazy, but I know what they're doing. They're trying to put us back in slavery. Thank you, Dead Prez. Uh, Report, more than half of mentally ill U.S. adults get no treatment. Um, this is from Tampa Bay dot com. Mental Health America just released its annual assessment of Americans with mental illness, the treatment they receive and the resources available to them. And the conclusions are sobering. 20 percent of adults, 43.7 million people have a mental health condition and more than half of them do not receive treatment among youth. The rates of depression are rising, but 80 percent of children and adolescents either get insufficient treatment or none at all. Once again, our report shows that too many Americans are suffering and far too many are not receiving the treatment they need to live healthy and productive lives. Paul Gianfrido, president of the national community-based nonprofit, said in a statement, We must improve access to care and treatments, and we need to put a premium on early identification and early intervention for everyone with mental health concerns. Mental Health America ranked all 50 states and the District of Columbia on 15 different measures, including adults with any mental illness, youth with at least one major depressive episode in the past year, and mental health workforce availability. Despite more Americans being insured, the report found a dire need for adequate treatment, especially in the Deep South. And I think anybody who lives in the United States would have to agree, there's a dire need for lots of things in the Deep South. Literacy programs, um, um... Uh, safe sex uh, programs, um, health clinics, dental clinics, um, quality, uh, cheap breakfast restaurants—they got covered. They got those taken care of in the deep south. I think I said dear south. It's the dear south. I just love the south so dearly, don't you know? Um, fracking news now. <coughs> That's the sound of digging into shale. <coughs> It sounds like Bill Hicks doing the elite Republican guard. It's not. <laughs> From the Wichita Eagle, geologist said, Here's what caused Kansas's biggest earthquake. The largest recorded earthquake in Kansas history likely came from wastewater injected into the ground by just one or two nearby wells, according to a new study by scientists at the U.S. Geological Survey. One of those two wells, operated by Sand Ridge Energy, is still injecting water at the same level as when the earthquake occurred two years ago. The 4.9 magnitude quake struck about 40 miles southwest of Wichita. All this is Wichita news. What do we got this week? Uh, Stabbing kids is wrong and news from Kansas. It is the largest recorded earthquake in state history felt across 150,000 square miles of land with reports as far away as Memphis. Oh my word. They had reports all the way from Memphis. That we had, I don't think people in Kansas talk like that, but whatever. I'm doing my dear South impression. I'll tell you, these fracking reports are kind of concerning. They give me the vapors, but I still don't, you know, I'm not making much money off of this farmland. I need to get some kind of cash out of this since my pappy left it to me. More fracking news. Majority of potential UK fracking sites are rich in important wildlife. Not for long. Uh, This comes to us from The Guardian. The Guardian. Lefties. Many of the areas that have been recently marked as potential sites for fracking are rich in wildlife that perform crucial functions from pollination to decomposition, researchers have found. I should be reading this in a British accent. Scientists say that almost two-thirds of the areas that have been labeled as suitable for shale gas extraction have levels of biodiversity equal to or above the national average, according to a new analysis of records collected from across the country. Quote, a lot of the areas that have opened up to shale gas licensing actually harbor much higher than average levels of biodiversity, said Tom Oliver. Isn't he the guy who has that show on HBO? He used to do the bugle. Ayk, 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 ayk. Uh, University of Reading, who is a senior author of the study in the Journal of Applied Ecology. We only have one natural heritage and we have to protect it. And so using these data to highlight those very valuable sites and to facilitate their protection is hopefully a useful thing to do. What a polite way to say stop fracking everything, you fracking nerds. And finally tonight, some good news from Indonesia. Finally for the news section, not for... We'll get to other stuff in a second. Just hang on, people. Indonesia President Jokowi defends LGBT rights. This is from Human Rights Watch awesome. Indonesia's president, Joko Jakawi Widodo, on Wednesday broke his long silence on the country's escalating climate of hateful, anti-lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender rhetoric by defending the rights of the country's besieged LGBT community. Jokowi declared that the, quote, the police must act end quote, against any moves by bigoted groups or individuals to harm LGBT people or deny them their rights. End quote, there should be no discrimination against anyone. End quote. Jokowi's statements in defense of the rights of LGBT people is long overdue. It follows months of increasingly hateful rhetoric from governmental offices and religious organizations. Anti-LGBT statements by politicians and officials in 2016, ranging from the absurd to the apocalyptic, have been accompanied by many threats and violent attacks on LGBT activists and others, including on a Muslim house of worship primarily by militant islamists in some cases the threats and violence occurred in the presence and with the tacit consent of government officials or security forces government commissions and ministries proposed discriminatory and regressive anti-lgbt laws and officials testified in a court case attempting to criminalize consensual adult same-sex behavior so uh yeah there's a very interesting you know i mean look if you want to talk about indonesia there's a lot of things we have to talk about the main one being this look a lot of people talk about how it's the The world's biggest Muslim nation, which it is, I think. Um, And it's like the fourth biggest country in the world in terms of population. It's, It's very huge. And it's majority Muslim. But we have to understand that that Muslim majority is often manipulated by the very corrupt military regime that's been in power since 1965. And so whenever there are, you know, I mean, they crack down on militant Islamists. When it suits them, and they let them run wild. When it doesn't, so you know, it, it, when it suits them, they do one thing. When it suits them they do the other thing. So, so there's a very cynical power play that's been going on in Indonesia for 40, 50 years now. Um, so there's a lot to be said about that. But anyway, enough with the current events. Let's talk about some economics. I got Hajun Chang's latest book, Economics, uh, The User's Guide, but I haven't really made much progress on it. Um, I've been reading DMC's book and trying to get back into Infinite Jest and grading a million papers and playing video games and all sorts of other things. But I'm making excuses. Anyway, the point is we got a couple of economic news stories here, so let's get right to them. Wells Fargo CEO Stumpf retires with $134 million. Oh, pretty sweet. John Stumpf, the embattled CEO of Wells Fargo, unexpectedly retired from the company on Wednesday, effective immediately. And this comes from USA Today. Stumpf's move comes just weeks after he was grilled by two congressional panels over the way the bank handled an alleged scam, where upwards of 2 million accounts were created by employees without the knowledge of customers. The accounts were allegedly opened so thousands of employees could meet aggressive sales goals set by, Management. This is the the thing I'm always talking about where uh, corporations, including banks, have to post more and more profits every quarter and so in order to get there they committed fraud in this case 2 million fraudulent accounts Stumpf was widely criticized for the way he handled the questioning pushing the blame to lower level employees and not holding upper level executives including himself responsible now as I've also said you know this whole thing this is called plausible deniability it started with Reagan I mean it probably started before him but whatever uh, you know this idea that the person in charge of organization it's okay if they don't know what's going on inside their own organization and therefore that becomes the excuse. Every time a president is caught red-handed, in Reagan's case, violating the U.S. Constitution with the Iran-Contra deal, uh, or in the case of, you know... Adelphia and Tyco and WorldCom and Enron and all that stuff in the 90s, or in the case of 2008, the Wall Street disaster, every every CEO always says the same thing. Well, I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know how dangerous this all was. I just sit in my office and pick my butt all day. And everyone goes, okay, well, you know, nobody's perfect. (laughs) You don't have to go to jail. And it's ridiculous. We need something in the law that says... If you're in charge of this organization, you, ha- you, uh, you have to know what's going on. And if you don't, maybe you don't go to jail as long as if you do know what's going on and you allow it to happen. But if you don't know, you go to jail for three quarters as long or something like that. I'll bet you we'd see a tightening up of the ships. We'd see a lot more CEOs who know what the what is going on in their companies lickety split. If we stopped accepting, I don't know, as a reasonable rationale for why your you know vice president in charge of janitorial supplies is running a fraudulent you know scam for your whole company that nets you millions of dollars uh, while stumpf doesn't receive a special retirement payout executive pay tracker Equilar estimates he'll walk with $134.1 million. million. The package remains that large even after Stumpf last month agreed to a $41 million clawback following a grilling he received from the Senate Banking Committee reprimanding him for not taking responsibility. And that's all you're going to get as a CEO of a company. You're going to get a grilling from a Senate subcommittee. Oh no, I think I can handle that. If you want to pay me $134 million to let the Senate subcommittee yell at me for two hours, okay, I'll do that. I'm good at saying, well, Senator, I had no knowledge of that. Uh, He agreed to give up unvested stock but still own shares vested in previous years. I have no idea what that means, but basically he's getting to keep a lot of money. While Stumpf walks with millions, the fraud has been much costlier for the bank's once stellar reputation and for those who hold Wells Fargo stock. Investors have lost $23.1 billion in market value as the shares have fallen nearly 10% from when the scandal broke. Now, I'd be interested to know how much of that market value was built upon fraud. So maybe those shareholders should lose the value because if it was built on fraud, then it crashes because of fraud coming to light. Well, that's just sensible. Anyway. Okay, uh... (laughs) <laughs> There's this article called uh, "Where's This From?" USA Today: Ghosts of October's Past Haunt Wall Street. And you gotta check out the stupid ghost photo in this article. I suspect that given the fact that all trading is now done with computers, news outlets don't really have the lively photo opportunities of hyperactive guys on the trading floor like they used to have in the past. You know, you got this floor full of traders and people gesturing. You, they don't have that anymore. The stock market's just a boring office now. Anyway, October, a month known for history-making market swoons, is again flashing its signature DNA, volatility, as Wall Street navigates a stock market flashing warning signs. Now, this is from October. This is before the election, right? It's not unusual unusual for the ghosts of October's past to haunt stock investors as market crashes in 1929 and 1987 occurred in October, as did the meltdown in 2008. It happens every October uh, after Wall Street Titan Lehman Brothers filed for bankruptcy. And as earnings season gets underway, it's hard to ignore the fact that corporate America has has been in an earnings recession for four straight quarters, says Thomson Reuters. Wall Street is hoping the current earnings reporting season snaps the S&P 500 streak of quarters with contracting profit growth. Quote, One risk is the possibility of disappointing third quarter earnings, says Kate Warren, market strategist at Edward Jones. Throw in the uncertainty of the presidential election, a resurgent dollar that hurts U.S. exporters, and a market that is overvalued, and the risk of a market fallout is real, says Mark Lushini, chief investment strategist at JANI. So there's some economic news for you. Let's keep moving right into education. This feels like a really disjointed episode to me, in part because I collected half this stuff before the election, half of it after, and I don't know, it's just a crazy time of year. You know, winter break is always a nutso time, because, you know, it's the end of the school, it's the end of the calendar year, but it's we're not done with the semester yet. We, we've got... Two weeks of classes and then final exams in January. And the new semester comes right after that. I always love new semesters. I mean, the end of the semester is always a great time because everybody who's slacked off and, you know, dragged their feet all semester and they suddenly realize, I need this class to graduate. They start paying a lot of attention and turning things in and you're just like, yay, you're finally paying attention and taking notes. But... Uh, you also have a lot of people begging and scrimping and hoping they'll pass, even though they didn't do any work all semester. But then, you know, people who didn't speak to you all semester will be like, I really enjoyed the class or whatever. they, the, the school hands out these, I got a stack of them right here. These little notes to the students to be like, Hey, write down a thank you note to a teacher. And it's not directed in any way. So it's, the kid totally gets to choose who they want to write to. So it's all, it's extra flattering when someone hands you a note because of that, um, so, I got a few of them that really made me happy. Um, a lot of people saying they like the interdisciplinary poetics class, which is the hip hop class I teach, and um, talking about, you know, they appreciate the passion I have for the class. And one student wrote, Your loud attitude and how smart you are encourages me to learn more. You're damn right I'm loud. You're damn right I'm smart. Those are the two things that are at the heart of my teaching praxis. And so that gives me confirmation that I should be even louder and more of a know-it-all because that makes students want to learn. Anyway, on to education news. It turns out spending more probably does improve education. This is from an article in the New York Times. For many years, research on the relationship between spending and student learning has been surprisingly inconclusive. Many other factors, including student poverty, parental education, and the way schools are organized, contribute to educational results. Teasing out the specific effect of money spent is methodologically difficult. Opponents of increased school funding have seized on that ambiguity to argue that, for schools. Money doesn't matter, and therefore, more money isn't needed. But new, first-of-its-kind research suggests that conclusion is mistaken. Money really does matter in education, which could provide fresh momentum for more lawsuits and judgments like the Connecticut decision that they mentioned earlier in the article. So it's interesting because, you know, Bill Gates, for instance, is a big reformer of education, and he keeps saying class size doesn't matter, the idea of spending more money on education doesn't matter, And and and... It's just not fair to say, well, you know, we we should do things like... And he's got all these methods of dealing with, you know, oh, the teachers' unions are the problem because they defend bad teachers. And, and, you know, they want to run schools like a business. And I wrote a piece many, many years ago called A Profit Without Honors, which is all about the business model of education and why schools don't work when they run like businesses. And we can't apply the same management tactics to schools that we use in business. It just doesn't work. They're two different institutions. Blueberries, blueberries, blueberries. And if you haven't read The Blueberry Story by Jamie Vollmer, you need to read it right now. So uh, it's frustrating. Now, questions about like student poverty, that, those are important questions that we need to take into consideration, especially because the U.S. Department of Education once did a study where they concluded that 90% of the uh, variation in student test scores come from factors outside the classroom, which means that, yes, the work we do in school is incredibly important, but it's not nearly the only thing that affects student test scores. And so when we teachers have students in our classes or if we look at, you know, our schools, our test scores as a nation, we can't just say, well, it's the teacher's fault. Because every responsible educator worries when their students don't do well on tests, but we have to recognize a that there's a lot of reasons why those test scores might not be as good as they should be and b it's not all about test scores, okay? I've had many students who do really well in terms of grades, they do really well in terms of test scores, but they can't talk about themselves or the world with any kind of sincerity or or skill, right? They can't relate to other human beings very well. And on the flip side, I've had students who bomb every test they take and they've gotten very bad grades, but they're really smart. And so there's other reasons why they don't do well in grades and tests. So uh, I I would, you know, whatever. Uh, Yeah, next article. Out of Options. Oh, this is a really good article. This is from Vice, I believe. Is that correct? Vice. News.vice.com. Out of options. School choice gutted Detroit's public schools. The rest of the country is next. So Betsy DeVos, as I mentioned, is the uh, pick for Trump's Secretary of Education. And it's going to be a nightmare for America's schools if she gets her way. And hopefully Congress will put up some of a fight. But the Republican-controlled Congress is likely not to fight very hard. So we'll see how much power a few Democrats can have in trying to stop the... uh, Bum Rush of America's Public Schools. So the whole article is very long and it's really good. You should read the whole thing. But here's an excerpt. The gutting of Detroit's public schools is the result of an experiment started 23 years ago when education reformers, including Betsy DeVos, now Donald Trump's pick to lead the education department, got Michigan to bet big on charters and school choice. The Obama administration has promoted competition, but DeVos looks set to take free market education policy to new heights. She has made clear her goal is to use charters to eventually get public dollars to private and religious schools. But the consequences of her school choice policy in Detroit leave gaping questions about How she will also care for America's public schools in Detroit choices come largely at the expense of the traditional public school district and schools like Oakman which they profile earlier in the piece as students joined new charters public school enrollment and funding fell. Unregulated competition pushed these schools into near-unrecoverable insolvency and allowed dubious for-profit charter operators to prosper without establishing a track record of better outcomes for students. A 2014 analysis showed 17% of Detroit charter school students were rated proficient in math versus 13% of traditional public school students. Last year, less than 1% of the city's schools got an A or a B-plus rating from Excellent Schools Detroit, a local reform group that provides school information to families. Place. Nearly 70% earned a D-plus or lower, and 40% of those bottom performers were charters. So it's kind of a toss-up. Whether a school sucks or not, whether it's a charter or a public school, the, the outcome isn't any better. Uh, earlier this year, seven Detroit students sued the state of Michigan for failing to provide basic access to literacy, and two of the kids were enrolled in local charter schools. So, so that myth that charter schools do it better, that's just wrong. I mean, there's no evidence... There's evidence that there are good charter schools that do amazing things in, you know, poor communities, especially communities of color. But there's amazing public schools that also do the same thing in, you know, poor communities and especially poor communities of color. So so it's the, the question isn't should we have charter schools or public schools? The question is, sh- how do we have better schools everywhere? Right. And and the, 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 the risky thing is that. People say that private schools do better because they're private, and that's just not true. The, the danger is that the public loses its ability to hold those schools accountable when they're private, right? When there's a church running the school, or if it's a company running the school, then families and parents and community members, they don't have any way to say, wait a minute, we seek redress of our grievances. I mean, try to get redress for your grievances from BP, after the oil spill, right? Or try to get redress for your grievances from McDonald's if you get food poisoning. Good luck, right? You're lucky to get a free bag of fries if they mess up your order one time. You're not going to get, you know, if, they, if a fracking company causes an earthquake in Kansas, you can't be like, hey, fracking company, please make it right after you cause that earthquake. They're going to be like, get out of my face. I got to make these profits. So the same is true with schools. Um. Yeah. Oh, speaking of horrible things at schools, uh, teen accused of stealing a 65 cent carton of milk at middle school is going to stand trial. All Ryan Turk wanted was his carton of milk. And this comes from the Washington Post. The teenager says uh, he had forgotten to grab the drink the first time through the line at the Graham Park Middle School cafeteria, so he headed back. A recipient of free lunches at the Virginia school, Ryan felt he was just doing what he did every day. But a school resource officer said he spotted the teen cutting in line and accused him of stealing the 65-cent milk. When Ryan did not cooperate with a trip to see the principal, authorities say he was arrested and charged with disorderly conduct and petty larceny. Ryan turned down an office an offer of non-judicial punishment and was this week a Prince William County judge, uh, set a trial date in November for the Dumfries teen who is now a freshman in high school. He will face the criminal charges just days after his 15th birthday. And see, look, I work in a high school, so I can tell you that, okay, I, I don't know the details about that case. I wasn't there. I can't say. But I can tell you that a lot of times kids do things that are you know i mean let's give him let's give the security officer the benefit of the doubt let's say the kid swiped the milk right it's a 65 cent carton of milk who gives a damn and everybody's convinced that these are you know out of control young people who are just going to move on to murder and rape if you don't stop them at stealing of milk and they're they're about to catch the next you know menace to society and so they have to enforce you know, I mean, whatever it is, stealing milk or, you know, loitering in the halls or wearing hats. And look, I tell the students to take the hats off because that's the rule, right? And it's an easy thing for me to focus on. But it also, I don't take it too seriously. You know, yeah, I'll follow a kid down the hall with my little car that's like, please take your hat off. But I'm not going to like, you know, write him up and demand that he serve a detention or whatever. It's just a hat. It's really not that big a deal, right? So, I really feel like schools have to recognize that, you know, look, I'm not saying you turn a blind eye to stealing. If he really was stealing, okay, he really was stealing. But you go to him and you say, like, hey, did you pay for that milk? And then he can be like, oh, I forgot to get it when I went through the line. And you go, oh, okay, that's cool. Lunch lady, does that sound legit to you? She'd be like, I don't know, I can't keep track of this. And so then you say as the security officer, oh, maybe I should be watching the kids a little more carefully as they go through. Maybe if I have a bit of a relationship with the kids – then, if I think they're stealing, I could be like, hey, what are you doing? You know what I mean? So, I don't know. It's just so sad. Because this is the school-to-prison pipeline thing that so many writers have written about, including, uh, I think it's Melinda Anderson. There's a, an interesting writer that I follow on Twitter who wrote a book called Push Out, which I haven't yet read, but it's it's it looks like an interesting... Uh, text. Anyway, uh, Understanding Teacher Shortages. This is an interactive map of the U.S. Uh, Really interesting stuff. This comes from the Learning Policy Institute. This map highlights a number of key factors that reflect and influence teacher supply and attrition and signal whether states are likely to have an adequate supply of qualified teachers to fill their classrooms. Based on these data, which treat compensation, teacher turnover, working conditions, and qualifications, each state is assigned a teaching attractiveness rating, Indicating how supportive it appears to be of teacher recruitment and retention, and a teacher equity rating indicating the extent to which te- students, in particular students of color, are assigned uncertified or inexperienced teachers. Ratings are on a 1 to 5 scale, with 1, the lightest color, being the least desirable, and 5, the darkest color, being the most desirable. And it's been a while since I've looked at this, so let's pull it up and let's look at the two states I have taught in Wisconsin and Florida. So Wisconsin is right in the middle. It's actually toward, It's 2.42 is the teacher attractiveness rating. So let's click on it and look at the compensation rating is 3.5. Uh, the overall teacher attractiveness rating is 2.42. The teacher equity rating is 2.3 in Wisconsin. So the working conditions are at a 2.4. That's not great. Uh, the qualifications rating is at a 2. The turnover rating is at a 2. And I think a lot of this has to do with Scott Walker. Uh, it, it's, you know, he's made a lot of changes to our state that really don't make it attractive to teachers um yeah the wisconsin average for, uh, sorry the us average for uncertified teachers in high minority schools is 3.56% in wisconsin it's 2.9% um so it's less than the national average but uh still not great um, the ratio of inexperienced teachers in high versus low minority schools is 1.61 to 1 uh, percent of teachers of color it, o- overall in the U.S. is 18 percent. In Wisconsin, it's four percent. And this is something that's well known to everybody in Wisconsin. We have a really hard time keeping uh, African-Americans, you know, Latinos uh, folks in, in our state. Once you get certified and qualified, a lot of people are like, why would I want to stay in a place where it's the worst quality of life for African-Americans in the whole country, which Wisconsin is. And that's sad because it's one of the best places to live for the population as a whole. But for African-Americans, it's the worst place to live. And that's a that's a frustrating paradox because it means that my life is pretty darn good personally. But then because I have empathy and human compassion, I recognize that a lot of people are suffering and it, it makes me frustrated, you know, and like, it's messed up. So anyway, that's Wisconsin. Let's check Florida. Florida's rating is actually lower than Wisconsin's. Uh, Florida's teacher attractiveness rating is 2.25, uh, so it's even less than Wisconsin. The compensation rating is a 3. Wisconsin's is a 3.5, so we get paid a little more here. Quality uh, Cost of living is higher here, too. Um, yeah, working condition ratings is 2.4. Teacher qualification rating is 1 in Florida. Bah! That's where I got certified for the first time. That's why I had to take extra classes when I came up here. So anyway, uh, it's an interesting map. Check it out and see where you live in the U.S. and see how they treat their teachers. And now it's time for Killer Robots.
0: Finally, robotic beings rule the world. The humans are dead. The humans are dead. The humans are dead. They look like they're dead. I'll just confirm that they're dead. So that we
1: can have fun. Affirmative.
0: I poked one. It was dead.
1: One of the things I'm going to try to do next semester, I always have, you know, sort of like my this semester resolution at the start of the semester. And one of them is talk more and listen, uh, talk less and listen more. Talk more. Yeah. I need to talk more. Sure. Because I realize that it's, even in this podcast, when I just finished that last segment, I realized a lot of times I'm worried about wasting people's time. One of the things that frustrates me most in life is when someone appears to be wasting my time. So, for instance, in Rocket League, when the score is 7-1 and I'm on the losing team, it's time to forfeit. Okay, I don't care that there's two minutes left in the game. Yes, I have come back from difficult odds, but it's rare and I'd rather not waste my time. In Go, the board game Go, the proverb says, you know, don't waste your opponent's time if the game is lost. You hope they're going to make a dumb mistake. You hope you're going to get lucky. It's better to just resign and start a new game. And that's the way I feel when it comes to Rocket League. And, and as a result, if I have the floor, if I have the microphone, if I'm in charge of a classroom, I'm always worried that I'm not going to use every second as efficiently as possible. And that's the reason I talk so fast and I talk so much because I do know a lot and I have a lot of things to say about stuff. And I have things to say that I believe will be helpful for the people listening to me. But the flip side of that is that my ego kicks in, A. And B, it means that I think that if I pause or if I take a breath or if I slow down to collect my thoughts, then I'm wasting the audience's time. And nothing could be worse than wasting your time. But I realize as I listen to myself or as I think about how I'm communicating, I realize that it becomes this like just stream of words. It's called logoria. It's just blah blah blah. And so I'm basically amazed when anybody wants to listen to me, because I know how obnoxious I can be and how relentless my words are. Now, sometimes I think that's a good thing, because, for instance, it's hard to keep the attention of young people. On the other hand, if it's just a wall of talking, that's easier to tune out, right? So I'm working on slowing down in general. And I think especially when I talk, I could stand to hit the brakes once in a while, take a pause and let a moment land. That's a 30 rock reference. Okay, Killer Robots. Thanks to Turtle502. This is an interesting fusion of the Killer Robots segment with the uh, election. Killer Robots await Trump's verdict. Uh, This is from Politico again. uh, The new president will have to decide how aggressively the U.S. pursues military technology that could let machines run wild. Uh, a new age of machines empowered to make decisions about life and death is dawning as research and artificial intelligence advances, and President-elect Trump will have to make crucial decisions about whether the U.S. military embraces the technology. Quote, we are on the doorstep of what armed conflict looks like in the 21st century, said August Cole, a security expert and senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. To military planners, lethal machines that select and attack their own targets would be the logical outgrowth of decades of development in increasingly intelligent weapons, including precision-guided missiles and remotely piloted drones. Although it could take decades to deploy weapons that operate free of all human supervision, the Pentagon has already tested drones equipped with facial recognition software that could, in theory, identify enemy insurgents and target them at will. So, first of all, um, I, we watched a really good movie recently called Eye in the Sky. I will put the trailer in the show notes. Uh, it's 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 It stars Helen Mirren and Alan Rickman and Aaron Paul, Jesse, from Breaking Bad. And it's about this situation in Kenya where they have these suspected terrorists, including an American and two Brits, um, in a house. And it's like, we were going to do a... a capture mission with the local military but then when they went into this compound that not that wasn't suddenly wasn't an option and then they found these suicide vests and then the clock starts ticking we got to take them out now and then but there's this girl nearby and it's just a really interesting look at how you know these decisions get made and what the calculus is and you know it's basically the trolley problem of philosophy where do you you know risk killing one person in order to save 10 or whatever it is um so it's, but it's, it, but it's really well done because it, you know, Helen Mirren is in. I don't know where she is, Sheffield, let's say. And then, you know, her superior is in London and they're meeting with the defense minister or, you know, undersecretary of defense or whatever. And then they are on the phone to the U.S. secretary of defense for that region. And and meanwhile, the guy piloting the drone is Aaron Paul. He's in Oklahoma somewhere. And, and, and then they're talking to the people in Kenya, the military officials. And then there's a guy who's piloting this tiny little thing that looks like a fly. And, and it's just a really interesting look at how surveillance works, and and all the decisions that have to be made, and, and it's just, a, and it's very well done, it's the act, the performances are great, Helen Mirren is just amazing, I'll see her in anything, of course, um, and it's just a really good movie, um, now, you know, it, here's the thing, it it has to do with the ticking time bomb scenario, and most decisions about terrorism aren't really done like that, I, I expect that's, you know, a Hollywood, you know, element, That's a, it makes it for a more interesting story, you know, like, we have to make a decision now, um you know yeah okay when you have osama bin laden in a compound in islamabad and you you're worried that he's going to get away if you don't take action okay sure but it's not like 20 people are going to die in 10 minutes if we don't kill these terrorists right now um that's that's a convenient fiction for the sake of hollywood or ideologies in washington or whatever anyway it's a really good movie and then also when we talk about you know military technology, there's two books, one of which I've read and one of which I haven't read. One's called Wired for War that John Broad told me about. And the other one is, um, it's called War in the Age of Intelligent Machines. I haven't read Wired for War, but I read War in the Age of Intelligent Machines by Manuel DeLanda. And that's a really good book because it looks at the evolution of technology from the point of view of a robot historian two centuries from now or whatever. And he looks back on what were the what was the role of humans in allowing the technology to evolve. And it's just a really good look at that whole question. And... and uh, How, you know, it's anybody's guess, really. Uh, It's also the type of thing where, you know, there's arguments on both sides of it, in my view. Some people say, and I've talked about this on the show before, some people say that, you know, look, robots don't have the, the fury that American soldiers go nuts and just start killing civilians if they get, you know, PTSD or they snap. Or whatever. But on the other hand, human beings have the ability to say, wait, that's a child. I shouldn't open fire right now, and that can save lives. So I, I don't think we should take it out of the hands of human beings. I think the more cold and robotic we become as a society, the more people are going to die. That's my take on it. Will robots help or harm? It's time for big thinking, AI experts warn. Uh, so this comes to us from Pook World, or PC World, if you're not uh, down with the phone jacker. My name is Fooley. I am so coolie. Uh Quote, we've got to take responsibility for the technology we create, said Noel Sharkey, an emeritus professor of AI and robotics at the University of Sheffield, as well as chair of the International Committee for Robot Arms Control and co-founder of the Foundation for Responsible Robotics. Quote, we've got, st- we've got to do some big thinking here. Uh, though the potential for un- un- you know, unmanned drones and the rest of it is exciting, humans really have no idea what these numbers will bring. For instance, quote, We don't know that self-driving cars will save lives, Sharkey said. I wish the companies working on them would stop saying that. In military and police settings, the potential dangers are particularly concerning. Quote, I see no way we can guarantee compliance with the laws of war, Sharkey said. It's a real worry for international security. We have no idea what will happen. All in all, quote, we seem to be sleepwalking into this the same way we did into the Internet, he said. Some interesting perspectives. Uh, I'd like to know more about the uh, International Committee for Robot Arms Control, because that sounds like a group I could totally get behind. Uh, But here's a grim vision of what could happen. Robot goes rogue at tech fair, injures visitor. This was all just a mistake, but it still, it makes for a good story. A robot on display at an exhibition in China injured a passerby this week after attacking a display booth. This is from the Telegraph. According to People's Daily Online, the robot, known as Xiaopang, little fatty, rammed into the booth, sending shards of glass flying, one of which hit a member of the public in the ankle. The victim was taken by ambulance to a nearby. A hospital where he received stitches. Zhao Peng was designed to interact with children aged between 4 and 12, responding to questions while displaying emotions, quote unquote, represented by a series of facial expressions displayed on a screen, like, Bimo! Bimo Chop! Following the altercation, witnesses say Zhao Peng displayed a frowning face in an apparent show of remorse. And I think the article says that, I just didn't include it, but I should include it now. Uh,. It said something like, blah, blah, blah. This wasn't a blah, 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 blah. Turn off ad blocker. Don't tell me what to do, the telegraph. Um, The ca- the cause seems to be human error. Uh, an exhibitor controlling Xiaoping hit the forward button instead of reverse. So, this wasn't some, you know, apocalyptic thing where this stuff happened and the robot attacked him instead. It was just a. It was not a bemo chop. Bemo chop! If this were a real attack, you'd be dead. Oh. My glob. Oh. My. Glob. I'm just going to play all the Adventure Time sounds I have just because they're fun. Bacon pancakes, making bacon pancakes. Take some bacon and I'll put it in a pancake. This is a remix. Bacon pancakes, that's
0: what it's going to make. Bacon Bacon pancakes. Bacon pancakes, making bacon Bacon pancakes. pancakes. Take some bacon and I'll put it in a pancake. Bacon pancakes, that's what it's going to make. Bacon pancakes.
1: Oh, what a beautiful remix that is. Anyway, Robot Go- Oh, no, that's what I just read. Moving on. From FierceBiotech.com. Mind-controlled robotic arm helps paralyzed patients feel. What's up with that? In a paper published this week from the University of Pittsburgh, researchers have shown that a mind-controlled robotic arm can help paralyzed patients regain sensation in their limbs. Using a brain-computer interface, which has been shown to give patients the ability to move robotic extensions in past experiments by this UPIT team and others, University of Pittsburgh, uh, it is, important, it is important for allowing a person to perform simple functions. But with this new technology, the arm can interact with its environment in ways comparable to a human arm, notably allowing the operator to feel pressure in the form of an electronic stimulus. The robotic arm, developed at Johns Hopkins with a control system from BlackRock Microsystems, not only receives outputs from the brain, but it sends them back to a microelectrode array implanted in the brain's sensory cortex. The arrays are dime-sized and placed in the regions where the patient would feel from areas on his or her hand. Test patient Nathan Copeland, who has a spinal cord injury, leaving him quadriplegic, explained what it's like to have the implants in place. Quote, I can feel just about every finger. It's a really weird sensation, Mr. Copeland said about a month after surgery. Sometimes it feels electrical and sometimes it's pressure. But for the most part, I can tell most of the fingers with definite precision. It feels like my fingers are getting touched or pushed. Isn't that interesting? And it's only going to get more interesting as we get better and better and smaller and smaller technologies. And we could have exoskeletons at some point for quadriplegic people. I think that's really cool. Good things are happening with robotics, Um, but there's also bad things happening with them. This is from Los Angeles Times originally, but I can't find the original, so here's a reprint from uh, Uh, govtech.com. Dangers posed by lax motorists in autonomous vehicles draw scrutiny. When driverless cars without a steering wheel or brake pedal start hitting the highway, your only role will be ordering the car where to go. Between now and then, about five years by automakers' estimates, the relationship between drivers and their cars will enter uncharted and potentially hazardous territory. Robot-like features will take over an increasing share of the driving duties, but not all of them. Humans and robots will share the wheel, and it's uncertain how well people will adapt to this in-between state, whether they'll remain appropriately vigilant or leave everything to the machine, possibly at their own peril. More than a third of respondents to a recent State Farm survey said that if a semi-autonomous car took over part of the driving duties, they would eat, read, text, take pictures, and access the internet while driving. That would not be safe. And and let's be not, let's not kid ourselves. There's people doing these things already because they think, well, cruise control and whatever. I don't need to pay attention, but my father always said, you're in charge of this two-ton hunk of metal screaming down the highway at 70 miles an hour. You need to be in total control. Your mind needs to be clear. You need to be focused only on driving, right? Quote, there's something we used to call split responsibility, said Hod Lipson, director of Columbia University's Creative Machines Lab. Quote, if you give the same responsibility to two people, they each will feel safe to drop the ball. Nobody has to be 100%, and that's a dangerous thing. End quote. It's an issue that Tesla has wrestled with ever since the May death of a Model S driver using Autopilot, the company's popular driver assist feature. Autopilot users are instructed to keep their hands on the wheel and to stay alert, but many, lulled by a false sense of security, have ignored those warnings. Tesla recently started rolling out improvements to the software that it will says will make the features safer. So, I mean, look, here's the thing. We don't know if the net result for human beings has been fewer auto deaths. Probably that's true. I'd say in the last 20 years, all the advances in, you know, safety features in cars... And then before that, seatbelts, you know, airbags, etcetera, et cetera, those have all probably made us safer. So there have been probably fewer humans killed in traffic accidents or collisions, as people call them, because they're not accidents. I once saw a video that's like, They're not accidental, it's a collision. Anyway, uh, new vehicles will be something in between, part traditional automobile, part robot, with the robot increasingly picking up the driving duties. The in-between period could last a while. Raj Nair, Ford Motor Company's chief technology officer, estimates that only 20% of the new vehicle sales in 2030 will be completely driverless cars. Meanwhile, we refuse to accept the possibility of transportation infrastructure that uses fewer cars to begin with. If we all hate driving so much, why do we still cling so violently to our car fetish? Why not say like, look, I hate driving, you hate driving, let's put a train in. No, I need my car to do everything. It sucks, because those of us who don't like driving are stuck with no options. And finally, we're going to end the show with a positive news story. Las Vegas is now completely powered by renewable energy. Yay! Hooray for Las Vegas! All right, I'm closing my veteran gamers soundboard because I know that's something that's it's feature creep. Um, Now, I I didn't realize when I read the article for the first time, it's not the entire city, private and public. It's just the city infrastructure. But that's still really cool. Uh, Last week, Las Vegas reached its decade long goal of completely powering the city with renewable energy, making it the largest city in the United States to do so. Quote, uh, Las Vegas is one of the few cities in the entire world that can boast using all of its power from green sources. Mayor Carolyn Goodman told reporters at City Hall last Monday. The city invested more than $40 million in the project over the years. They have since installed solar panels on city buildings and have saved at least $5 million on energy each year. By the end of 2017, the city plans on receiving power from the Hoover Dam for the first time in history. Yay! So I would like to see that happen everywhere now, please, since Las Vegas proves that it's possible. I mean, if ever there's a city that's sucking power out of nowhere, it's Las Vegas. Now, do they have an easier time getting solar power because they're in the middle of a desert? Maybe. But we haven't even tried in most other cities, so let's start by trying, shall we? Alright, it's time for us to talk about hip ha. Uh, one, two, one, two, uh. uh. Uh, there have been three really good hip-hop albums that have come out in the last like two months. Um, Tribe Called Quest put out their latest album, um, Thank You for Your Service, We Got It From Here, and Like a week before that, Common put out his most recent album, Black America, again. And they're both fantastic. I'll talk about Common's probably next week. Uh, And then on Christmas Day, Run the Jewels put out RTJ3. And it's really good, too. Now, the best tracks, I think, were the ones that were released before the album dropped. So Talk To Me is probably the best on the album. There is no um, Hold Your Breath and Count To Fudge like there was on RTJ2. That song was just like, the first time I heard it, I was just like, yes! But the stuff on this new album is also very good. So uh, check it out, RTJ3 and Black America again. I'll probably talk about those uh, soon. But I want to talk about Tribe Called Quest's latest album because it's probably their last one. I mean, I don't know if if it's going to be their last one, but... Okay, so here's the thing. For those who don't know, Tribe Called Quest was one of the most influential hip-hop groups in the 90s. Um, They had this sound that was just beautiful, mixing sources and samples from all over the world. Um, They had Lou Reed stuff in there. They used a lot of jazz music. Um, The musical sort of virtuoso of the group was this guy named Q-Tip, who was just a master at mixing stuff together. But then they had... uh, So Q-Tip rhymed. They had a guy named um, Jarobi And Fife Dog was the the other rapper. And... um, It was just a really awesome group, and their first album was called um, uh, People's Instinctive Travels in the Quest: Paths of Rhythm or something like that, and then they put out um, um, The Low End Theory and then Midnight Marauders, and and they had a couple of weak albums along the way, but then they went silent for 18 years, and part of that was because there was this feud in between Q-Tip and Fife, and there's a documentary film called... um, music rhymes in life beats rhymes in life something like that michael rapaport put it out it's a good movie it's a really good movie and you know there was some bad blood between the two of them but anyway um they got back together lately they recently came together to make an album called we got it from here thank you for your service and it's a really good album it's musically very diverse just like the best of of tribe called quest's music and the new york times did a really good article um called Lost Haunts, A Tribe Called Quest's first album in 18 years, recorded just before the death of Fife Dog in March. Uh, we got it from here. Thank you for your service. It's heavy with his presence. When they performed on Saturday Night Live uh, right after the election, they had a huge painting of Fife that they put up, uh, and they performed two of their songs from the album. And it's a really good album. You should totally check it out. Uh, the, the single that they've put out is called We the People, and it's really awesome. So here's an excerpt from that song.
0: I don't believe you, cause we the people are still here in the rear, yo, we don't need you. You ain't a killing off good young n- mood. When we get hungry, we eat the same f- food, the ramen noodle. This simple voodoo is so maniacal, reliable to pull choo juju. The irony is that this bad bitch in my lap. She don't tell me she make money, she don't study that. She gon' give it to me, ain't gon' tell me none of that. She gon' take the brain away the place, she spit on that. but are signs with it. Don't try to rhyme with it. VH1 has a show that you can waste a time with. Guilty pleasure take the edge of reality and for a salary, I'll probably do that d- sporadically. The OG Gucci boots are smitten with iguanas. The, the IRS for honesty, an getting common. in the hood living in a fishbowl. Gentrify here, now it's not a hole. Trend set up, I know my s***hole. Hands set up because I ain't so bold, with it. Boy, we hate your way. Uh, so, all oh, you better hope you must go. Uh, the, the fog and in the smog of the of media that logs false narratives of the gods that came up the against the, the odds. odds. We're not just the rappers with the bars. It's kids with that are conflict with the stars. You bastards overlooking street art, better yet, street smart, but you keep us off the chart. Some of the numbers and your
1: statisticians. And that's Fife Dog at the end there. Um, he and Tip are kind of trading off verses, and it's just a really good album. They have a lot of good points. You know that track obviously has a lot to do with gentrification and how society, especially you know Trump's America is like, hey, all you Mexicans, you must go. And and uh, but but where are the people? We're united, and we're not going to take it. And we're going to fight back. What? All right, let's have a quote of the week. Friends, Romans, countrymen, let me
0: Cesar Pavese, uh, 1908
1: to 1950, was an Italian poet, novelist, literary critic, and translator. He is widely considered, according to Wikipedia, uh, among the major authors of the 20th century in Italy. In a collection of diary entries called This Business of Living, he said, quote, you cannot insult a man more atrociously than by refusing to believe he is suffering. So, somebody tells you they're suffering, believe them. And that's it! thank you for listening people show notes and links to everything in this podcast are on my blog didactic synapse which is at fbesp.org slash synapse my website is the floating brain of Eric S. Piotrowski which is fbesp.org there are links there to music I've made and fiction I've written and multimedia and the mind white book and lots of other stuff uh, the the um, the Martin Shkreli uh, video, Martin Skrilla video is still up on Robin and records and lots of other stuff is up there shout outs this week to you for listening everyone who's shown me such love for the mind White Book in the Circle of Mindfulness. Special shout out to Marta Hansen for hosting me once a week for the Mindfulness Circle in Sun Prairie. Uh, shout out to Chinny and Tara for the packages. Shout out to the Duchess for being awesome. Shout out to Richard Webster. We finally agreed on something in terms of nuclear weapons. Boo! Nuclear weapons. Um, shout out to all my former students who've shown me love on Twitter uh, and Facebook and all the students who gave me these very nice messages and everybody who gave me chocolate. And yeah, that's it. I don't have a lot of time to edit this thing, so I apologize if there's dumb stuff I've got to cut out I don't know what to tell you I'm a very busy man deal with listen, it listen I don't have
0: time to play with the phone here I got a lot of stuff I got to get done
1: thank you for listening people please get in touch with feedback or questions if you find a news article you think would be good for the show please send it to me you can tweet me at Scaff d-u-k-e-s-k-a-t-h or you can send me email at esp at f-b-e-s-p dot and that's it I'm gonna stop talking now now turn on tune
0: in break out
1: Didactic Syncast is a production of the floating brain of Eric S. Piotrowski, which is solely responsible for its content. This program is a joint venture of ribonucleic records and Garrison Multimedia. Our show is made possible by a grant from the Fargus Foundation. Some restrictions may apply. See store for details. Fight the power. So powerful. And once again, for the record, I am against stabbing kids. Stabbing kids is wrong. You listening, Donald Trump?